The following program has language that might be offensive, depending on your definition of might and offensive and your understanding of the language. It's Friday, December 23rd, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. We now have the January 6th report, which is, among many things, a chance for Donald Trump antagonists to wax elegiac about the possibility of his conviction. It's that rhapsody that constitutes most of the coverage, and it's the public attention to these matters that makes the report important. So think about this. It's a, it's a little bit of a Mobius strip, a begging the question. The report is newsworthy because of its potential to galvanize the public, but it might galvanize the public only if it gets widespread dissemination in the news media. They reinforce each other. As we discussed this week on Not Even Mad, good episode, Dan Savage, Jamie Kerchick, they're the co-hosts. There's no real power in this report, but for the power of narrative. I'm not looking for this as a chance to make the same point that those who want Trump convicted have been making all along, that they're convinced that Trump should be convicted. They need no convincing. They got more than enough convincing to clear the threshold. They think the guy's guilty. Here's a good reason why. No amount of commentary can change the stubborn fact that the Department of Justice's decision is theirs alone. But the public, but the pressure, but the sheer abundance of evidence. Yes, yes, all of that, all of that evidence, that's what the DOJ will look into. I am, however, very interested in these over 800 pages because I want and rely on the news media to surface for me key details, instances through anecdotes and acts that show me what was going on, what a dissolute toddler slash madman we were dealing with. We knew it in the abstract. We knew some of these anecdotes, but just to read it, just to see under oath testimony to the insanity involved in the sycophancy he engendered is breathtaking. Here's a text message between Eric Hirschman, Trump lawyer, and Mark Meadows. Just FYI, Alex Cannon and his team verified that the 10,000K supposed dead people in Georgia is not accurate, says Hirschman Meadows. I didn't hear that claim. It is not accurate. I think I found 22, if I remember correctly. Two of them died just days before the general. Hirschman, it was alleged in Rudy's hearing today, your number is much closer to what we can prove. I think it's 12. Meadows, my son found 12 obituaries and six other possibles, depending on voter roll accuracy. Hirschman, that sounds more like it. Maybe it can help Rudy find the other 10,000. Meadows, LOL. Mm-hmm. Here's a part. Referring to a video clip, Giuliani even accused Freeman and Moss, these were two citizen election workers in Georgia, accused them of trading USB drives to affect votes as if they were vials of heroin or cocaine, the USB drives. This was completely bogus, the report says. It was not a USB drive. It was a ginger mint. I actually knew that, but the telling detail of the ginger mint is, like ginger mints themselves, delicious. And here's another one, a meeting between uh, Mark Meadows and acting Justice Department lawyers. In this meeting, Meadows also raised a new and outrageous allegation of election fraud that an Italian company had been involved in changing votes in the presidential election. According to Meadows, there was a man whom Donahue, that's the then acting assistant AG, Richard Donahue, later learned was in an Italian prison who claimed to have information supporting the allegation that CIA officers stationed in Rome were either aware of the plot to interfere in the election or had participated in it. 
Donahue described how it was apparent that Meadows was not clear on the specifics of the allegation, but passed them on to DOJ to investigate nonetheless. Meadows and other senior officials in the Trump administration pressed DOJ to investigate every allegation of fraud, regardless of how absurd or specious. Absurd and specious. That is the motto. I don't know what is, is Latin for. Oh, absurdum would be absurd. And specious would probably be something like speciosa. Absurdum ad speciosa. That's the Trump administration. It's great. It's great to have this report to just lay out detail after detail because you get convicted on facts. What is narrative other than facts that fit a pattern, a pattern apparent to the reader or the listener? And so at the very least, let's not talk about the narrative and what this narrative proves and how good the narrative is or do so if that uh, benefits you and your understanding of democracy. But me, I just like the surfacing of all these bits of data that a good, let's say, Department of Justice official can weave together to convince a jury that crimes were committed. On the show today, it's an Antoine Tig. I reveal my favorite Christmas song. But first, Dartmouth professor of political science Brendan Nyhan is co-founder of Bright Line Watch. It's an excellent group. I always refer to it. It's a watchdog organization that monitors the status of American democracy. As you know, I take this seriously yet not always catastrophically. Brendan Nyhan, up next. A lot of people like elections because, you know, they're dramatic and also they give us leaders and tell us the direction of the country. Not me. I like elections because they give us data, but also tell us a little bit about the direction of the country. And one of the most valuable sources of data is the Bright Line Watch. The Bright Line being the health of the democracy in general. We've had Dartmouth College Professor of Government Brendan Nyhan, who's a co-director of the Bright Line Watch, on the show in the past. In fact, I think he was the first or second guest of season two. That's how important I think these issues are. And I really respect the work that he's doing because rather than just a vague feeling that it's all going to hell, the Brightline Watch puts real numbers on how to hell it's all going. Professor Brendan Nyhan, welcome back to The Gist. It's great to be back. So the top lines of the Brightline Watch are all pretty positive, and I think that shouldn't surprise my listeners. I mean, the election wasn't a disaster, and most of the deniers either conceded or being ignored and didn't get their way. But you give me some of the headlines from the latest batch of findings. Yeah, the, the our latest report, which you can find on our website, is quite encouraging. You know, many of us were worried that this election would uh, further empower the election deniers who've um, become the majority of the Republican Party, at least when it comes to the 2020 election. So it was remarkable to see, as you said, um, uh, election deniers seemingly being punished at the polls, underperforming relative to other kinds of Republican candidates. And um, after the election, uh, losing candidates accepting their defeat, with very few exceptions, Kerry Lake in Arizona being the most prominent, um, even the candidates who questioned the legitimacy of the 2020 election were willing to accept the result in the way that democracy demands. They accepted their defeat 
and at least grudgingly affirm the legitimacy of the process. And that is a remarkable form of progress compared to what we saw in 2020, which was an, an attempted coup. So that's quite a long way to come in two years. And our, our latest report shows um, that not only did we see that progress in terms of how the election played out, it's being reflected in how the public thinks about American democracy and how experts judge it. So we see increased confidence in the vote count, um, both for people's personal vote as well as votes in their state across the board, including among Republicans. We see an overall increase in confidence in the national vote count, although that unfortunately is only flat among Republicans, but it didn't get worse. So still um, progress you know, relative to 2020. Um, and we see our experts uh, as well viewing the status of American democracy more positively um, and seeing the future prospects of American democracy more positively. This might be a turning point. It's too early. We have to be careful. We have to keep our guard up, but the signs are encouraging. Mm. And you ran an interesting experiment about what would happen if sort of normalizing the accepting of results, uh, a thought experiment, in fact, with the with experts and people about either Doug Mastriano or Carrie Lake saying, yeah, I lost. Tell me about that. Yeah, we wanted to see what would happen if people were exposed to either a concession or a non-concession. We think this is a really important ritual of democracy. It's something we took for granted. The concession speech was a kind of formality. Um, it wasn't often news because it was taken for granted. But now in the post-Trump era, it's actually a vital part of affirming the democratic process and affirming the legitimacy of the election result. So what we did was we randomly exposed people either to a quote from Carrie Lake denying the results of her election, or a quote from Doug Mastriano, who surprisingly accepted the results. Um, and, you know, we didn't find any uh, effect to our surprise. Um, so, uh, you know, Democrats in general were more likely to say these candidates should concede, which message they heard didn't have any effect. Um, Republicans were somewhat less likely to say Mastriano should concede when they heard about Lake fighting her defeat and vice versa. The other way around, when they uh, when they heard um, Mastriano conceding, they were somewhat more likely to say Lake should concede. But we couldn't come to confident statistical conclusions on those points. So I would say the jury is still out. But I'll, I will double down on the broader point that concessions are vital. We obviously saw that in 2020. And um, in some ways, you know, the lack of an effect there may be a result of how well the election went. Experts exhaled a little bit about the state of democracy. The public did. Democrats did. What about Republicans who actually didn't lose? They got more votes and they uh, they they gained more seats in the House of Representatives. But did Republic are Republicans thinking that democracy is a little is in a little better shape than they did a couple of years ago? So you know, there's there's good and bad news. So you know, we we focus on this comparison to before and after the election, um, where we see um, you know. The national vote count confidence is flat, but in the longer term, we did see before the election an increase in the percentage of Republicans who thought uh, Joe Biden was the rightful winner of the 2020 election. Um, that uh, result was statistically unchanged after the election, but again, that's good. That that improvement is holding. Um, in terms of the future prospects of democracy, uh, Republicans aren't as optimistic in terms of the trajectory. Um, we didn't see as big changes. You know, experts became more optimistic about the future trajectory. Those changes weren't um, statistically uh, discernible uh, among Republicans. Um, but again, considering they underperformed expectations, that's a kind of progress. 
right? We fear that people are being told the system is rigged against you and that's why you lost, right? Or that's why you didn't do as well as you thought you were going to. And because those Republican elites weren't pushing that message successfully, Donald Trump had a much smaller voice in the aftermath of this election and many fewer Republicans echoed those kinds of claims. The kinds of people who bent the knee during and after the 2020 election stayed on the sidelines, right? And in some cases, they were shoving the knife in his back. They were using this as a kind of opportunity to try to sideline the MAGA faction. And that meant people didn't hear those same messages about how the election system was rigged. That doesn't mean we won't see the same playbook tried in 2024, but again, it's a sign of progress and it shows that we can get through a, a, an election and have both parties respect the results. And, and, and that again is a kind of progress. One of the most useful questions I asked you and answers you gave was just how threatened I tried to. I remember we talked in the past. I'm like, give me a give me a letter grade. Give me uh, how many alarms. And the I, I forgot exactly what you said, but it was something along the lines of and this comports with what Barbara Walter said about how much our democracy has slipped. OK, we were an A and now we're a B plus. Am I getting that about right? I don't want to put words in your mouth. I, you know, I'm a professor. I give a lot of grades. I don't remember exactly what I said, but we're definitely, we're definitely struggling. Um, yes. Yeah, we were definitely struggling. I think the, the grade I gave last time was, um, you know, I was a very concerned um, instructor at a minimum. Okay, right. But I also got the sense that if you wanted to conclude that civil war was nigh, you weren't buying into that. Now, as I read your report, I think that uh, experts such as yourself um, have exhaled a bit. We've all exhaled a bit because essentially, tell me, I mean, you could read into all the data, but after 2020, we had an abnormal result, an attack on the Capitol. And now after 2022, we had a normal result. So it would just comport with that. Yeah, that's right. I, I was always skeptical about the Civil War uh, prognosis. I do fear sporadic outbreaks of political violence, but I think Civil War is is a term that misleads more than it, it, it informs. Um Setting that, setting it aside, you know, I think things look better, but we have to be careful not to let our guard down. Donald Trump is openly calling for a coup to restore him to power after a failed attempt at a coup. And current betting and prediction markets have him uh, having about a 15 to 20% chance of being the next president of the United States. This is someone who always was, um, spoke favorably about authoritarianism and behaved like an authoritarian leader, but now is openly embracing it, right? And there is a um, one in five, one in six chance he could be the next president of the United States, right? So our, our experts are still very alarmed about that prospect. They overwhelmingly say it's a threat to democracy. And uh, the vast majority of them say it's an extraordinary threat to democracy. Now, his prospects in the 2024 uh, nomination race look much less favorable than they did before the election. So maybe the chances of that are lower. But if you went to the airport and I told you there was a between one in five and one in six chance your pilot would be a maniac who would try to crash the plane, you wouldn't get on that plane and you wouldn't be very happy and you wouldn't say this aviation system is working super well, right? So I think we have to keep both of these ideas in our heads at the same time and think about how to calibrate our perceptions of risk. Right. But I remember talking about the plane analogy last time, but it is generally true that Trump, Trumpism absolutely represents a threat and the more viable or plausible his uh, attaining power seems or retaining power seems, uh, that's what the threat correlates to. As Trumpism wanes, so does the threat. And now we're looking at a situation where it seems like uh, the the viability of Trump as a candidate has waned. 
Yes, so this will be a test of the extent to which Trumpism has become um, uh, instantiated into the Republican Party. You know, the single uh, best explanation of what politicians do is try to get elected, right? And we've seen that painfully demonstrated since 2017, again and again and again. So um, in a way, the underperformance of those MAGA candidates since the la- in this last election may be the most potent anti-Trump, um, uh, you know, uh, tactic of them all. Right. It's the first time we really saw a clear electoral penalty. And maybe that starts to move the needle within the Republican Party. That's yes, that's the hope I cling to, because that that's what could keep other politicians from embracing these kinds of tactics and trying to run that denial playbook on 2024 and 2026 and 2028. Because we can't be in a situation where every election could be the last one before our democracy is overthrown. Right. We can't you know, we 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 we, we made it through January 6th. But we can't have another one and another one and another one. And um, the Republican Party's pivot away from Trumpism is going to be the critical test. Who are the experts in your survey? They are political scientists at U.S. institutions who sent at least one uh, of their faculty members to our, our national conference. Your survey asked about a number of possibilities and a number of things that happen. And you asked the experts would this essentially be a threat to democracy or a benefit to democracy? And for the most part, I think their assessments were solid and what we'd all expect. Like if Trump were the nominee in 2024, would it be a threat or benefit? 89% said threat. 1% said benefit. Let's find that guy. Or what about if Democratic states adopted independent redistricting commissions? Guess what? I don't know how 7% said it would be a threat, but 76% said benefit. But when you asked about, you said Facebook limiting the Hunter Biden laptop story, I think now Twitter has been getting a lot of attention for that. 15% said Facebook, let's t- let's use just social media, uh, Facebook as a stand-in. Social media limiting the Hunter Biden laptop story, 15% of the experts said it was a threat to democracy and 26% said it was a benefit. Can you explain that? Yeah, that's that's a good question. And I don't I don't want to say that those folks are right. They may not be fully updated on the extent to which, you know, the clear evidence, as far as I know, right, as far as any of us knows, that it wasn't an influence op. Um, Yes, it's possible they were also interpreting it in terms of um, we should see that as a benefit to democracy, given the information available to them at the time. Right. I can't go into their heads, of course. Yeah. Right. But as we've seen in the conversation about the Twitter files, there's you know, there's the retrospective, um, did they make the right call given all available information? And then there's the, what was the information that was available to them at the time, a version of the question. And and, and those can be different, but I, I, I'm speculating here. Um, I, I think, um, you know, uh, the main takeaway I have from those results, honestly, is that our experts don't think those, uh, uh, you know, choices by the social media companies are high stakes for democracy in either direction, which we thought it was important, you know, that was a question that we'd gotten in, in pushback from some conservative folks was, you know, should, why aren't you asking about Hunter Biden? Isn't this really important? Social media censorship, et cetera. And so we wanted to see how people reacted. And in fact, you know, we found, um, you know, with, uh, you know, it was one of the areas where in general, people saw it as neither a threat nor a benefit, right? That was actually the majority view. Right. Or another way to put that is people didn't think that it really mattered that social media censored the story, but even among the people who thought it mattered, they thought it was a good thing rather than a bad thing. I don't know if the conservative scholars would be heartened by any of those findings. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, retrospectively, that the decision um, uh, looks terrible. 
Um, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to dance around that point. It looks terrible. Um, it, it's embarrassing. Um, but seeing, you know, saying that versus saying it was kind of a plot to interfere in the election, of course, is, you know, another, another matter entirely. Right. And so I'll channel, I'm not one of these guys, but uh, I have friends who are conservative. They would look at something like that and say it tends to discredit the expert community, which is what maybe, you know, a friend of mine at the Manhattan Institute, what his priors would be anyway. Yeah, no, and I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll say on that point, like, look, I mean, we all know academic experts are overwhelmingly Democrats. There's just no, there's no way around that point. You know, we've never denied it. Um, but I'll just say, if you look at the results of the the, the, the question you're, you're highlighting in particular, Mike, in our report, you'll see um, that the kinds of partisan actions that Democrats take don't play well with our experts, right? Our experts aren't seeking to maximize Democratic advantage. They're actually- Right, right. So right. It, that, independent, that independent districting is not uh, widely endorsed by all Democrats. You know, here it, where I am in New York, <laughs> the Democrats are very much against that's that. That's right, that's right. The, the, yeah. the, the Democratic gerrymander being taken off the table in New York probably cost Democrats the House, right? And our experts overwhelmingly endorse independent redistricting commissions that would take that off the table in Democratic states. They reject the tactic of Democrats picking who they think is the most beatable candidate in Republican primaries because that's endorsing these kinds of election hires who are threats to democracy. So they don't, they don't seem to be behaving like partisan Democrats. And that that's something that I find reassuring that they really are using their expert judgment. Can I say they're perfect in every respect and that those factors never affect their judgments? Of course not. Right. Um, but I, I think the, the balance of evidence from all of our reports are that the expert judgment is coming through and they're not just behaving like partisan Democrats. And I, I think that's um, you know a really encouraging sign because Another thing we need in a functioning um, a democracy are our experts who can give uh, real scientific judgments about matters of public concern. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I you know, if, if they just devolve into rank partisans, um, we've really lost something. And I, I don't think that they have. So I do. It does seem to me that your uh, survey of the experts is, in fact, a pretty good reflection of what I perceive to be expert opinion. But I also think I think there's a few things going on. One is if you ask any group of experts whose job it is to monitor threats, if you ask public health experts, they're going to say they're going to be more worried about epidemics than the layman. And maybe they'd be right. If you ask police chiefs, they're going to be more worried about crime than even informed citizens. If you ask terrorism experts, they're going to know where every every cell or every potential terrorist cell will bubble up. They're going to all be vigilant, and in some cases, they'll be right. But in general, since this is a group of people who are very well acquainted with all the noise that's out there, they're going to see signals that maybe don't come to fruition. So that's one thing I think is going on with the people who are very worried about democracy. They'll see these signs and perhaps like everyone else tasked with monitoring threats, and you want this, you want this from their your guardians, they're going to be a bit overvigilant. Do you think that that is a fair assessment? I think it's a reasonable concern. And we've certainly seen, you know, we've actually been trying to assess this, Mike. If you go back into some of our past reports, we've been asking our experts to forecast certain events and looking at their performance yes. in the probabilities yes. that they're giving to those uh, to those events. So we're trying to kind of see both um, what their expectations are and then how well calibrated are they to the percentage likelihoods they give correspond to the rate at which those events actually occur. And I think it's fair to say um, Political scientists are sensitive to these threats, in part because so many of them um, 
have studied or seen them happen in countries around the world, right? Um, they're, they're much more salient to political scientists who don't take our democracy for granted than Americans who kind of have grown up in an era of, of, of seeming democratic stability. Um, so I do think it's, it's, it's reasonable to worry about uh, risk sensitivity on the, you know, in our experts, and they may uh, on the margin be more sensitive. Um, I will say, though, you know, you know two, two points here. The first is if you actually look at, for instance, evaluations of American democracy that we've been measuring among our experts going back to the beginning of the Trump administration, they actually haven't moved all that much, right? For If you think of the most trident, democracy is over, fascism is upon us kinds of voices that you've seen on social media, those kinds of perceptions did not show up in our evaluations of the state of American democracy among experts, right? They clearly saw our democracy was better than the Russias and Hungarys of the world, right? They, they made clear differentiation between the state of our democracy and real autocracy, right? So they seem to be, um, you know, uh, attentive to the ways in which our, our democracy is still much better than many, many other political systems around the world. So that would be point one. And point two is, I would just say, uh, you know, um, being risk averse when it comes to democracy is uh, a very healthy practice, right? And I'll use my aviation analogy again. We we want to put we want an aviation system that tries really hard to. Um, to, to prevent plane crashes, right? Um, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to forecast events accurately, right? But on the margin, being a little bit sensitive to threats to democracy um, seems really important to me, especially because of the history in other countries, which suggests that once you go over these tipping points, they can be hard to reverse, right? Once mm -hmm. democratic erosion takes place, right? Um, we see uh, you know, those in power using those levers of power to make it hard to effectively oppose them. Um, and it's, it's not easy to unwind these steps um, in some cases once they're taken. And, and so around that kind of margin, when we fear tipping into a kind of a competitive authoritarianism, as it's called in my field, um, I think we should be very risk averse because the costs of going over that precipice uh, are so high. Brendan Nyhan is a professor of government at Dartmouth College, and he is a co-director of Brightline Watch. Brendan, thanks so much. My pleasure. It's great to be here. It's the spiel, in fact, specifically an Antwentig, a three-week period, and in fact, it is the last three-week period of the year. I'm not sure how or where they reset. I will have to consult the, the uh, facility in France that keeps the radioactive isotope from which we measure all Antwentigs. I'm going to reflect back on some of not just the mistakes I made and the clarifications that I can issue, but also the statements that I just put out there and which were never resolved. For instance, I was talking to Chris Malamphy about the great Christmas songs, and more than a few of you wrote in to say, well, Mike said, this is one of my favorite Christmas songs or my favorite Christmas song, but then there he, he never said what his favorite Christmas song was. So I do have to say I have a couple of favorite Christmas songs and I have some criteria. Just in general, I do like Santa Claus is Coming to Town or Sa Santa Claus is Coming to Town. If you say it with the correct meter, with the incorrect meter, I can take it or leave it. 
I do like the Christmas song, specifically the Mel Torme version. I'm not sure if it's fair that that one song gets called the Christmas song. It is fair that that one song by Cisco gets called the thong song. So I will I will note that. But if there is any song to be called the Christmas song, it, it might as well be the chestnuts and the open fry, fire and Jack Frost and your nose, et cetera, et cetera. When they do it, when he does it, when the golden fog envelops you, it sounds a little better than when I just did it. But I got to say the best song just as a song, and I think I could prove this, is Darlene Love's Christmas, Baby Please Come Home. is a banger, a banging the box to see what's inside. Oh, it's a puppy. Classic sitcom humor. But I always judge great Christmas songs on the criteria of if you didn't associate it with Christmas, if it didn't remind you of all Christmassy things, just as a song, would you listen to it? No one would listen to Jingle Bell Rock, right? That is just not a song that is of our time. It seems very dated. I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. I mean, it's a standard. We don't really call back standards for reasons other than, well, the sentiment is very important in a standard, but this kind of music doesn't appeal to us. Rocking around the Christmas tree, it's not even rock. It's swing. It's probably swing. But Darlene Loves, which is to say Phil Spector, as performed by Darlene Love, it is a great song. It has those two big chords in the beginning. Well, it's a series of chords, but the big ones are E minor and G major. And those are two related chords, E minor and G major. Bump! And these aren't, the next couple songs I'm going to compare it to aren't exactly those chords, but they're the same one, two cadence, rousing sentiment. So Darling Love's Christmas, Baby Please Come Home reminds me a little of Good Times. Christmas, Good Times. And it'll pump you up. It reminds me a little bit of George Michael's Freedom. It's one one word, not two words, but broken up into two syllables. But it has the same kind of ascending action. And you can always tell if a song is good, if you change the lyrics slightly, if it would really succeed in another genre. So there is this old, I don't know if it's an old saw, maybe it's a, a new monkey wrench, but there's this uh, old thought that... All great gospel songs could become great pop songs if you just change Jesus to baby, right? So if you change, so first of all, if you change Christmas Baby Please Come Home to Christmas Jesus Please Come Home, that could work in many a a fine gospel choir. But as proof that this is a great transcendent song, what Phil Spector did was he re-recorded it and changed the lyric to Johnny, please come home. Johnny. Now, no one gets as excited uh, about Johnny as they do Christmas. I mean, but but the point is he put it out. He released it shortly after the Christmassy song in 1963. He knew what he had and he knew that if you just change up the Christmas references, it would have great appeal across even non-Christmas celebrating peoples. I say he should have done a different one for every reindeer. Blitzen, Dasher. I don't know. I don't know how many people shop for Christmas songs for specific references to reindeer. So that answers a question. 
a question that maybe hung over you, bothered you, gnawed at you. But here is something that gnawed at listener Garth Vant Hull. Not because I expected fresh insight into a region I've spent nearly half my 58 years in, but because I thought you were going to use the opportunity to stop butchering the pronunciations as per our previous exchange. I was excited for you to talk about the Sahel, Africa. All right. And then you don't write that with that introduction unless you want to point out that I did butcher the pronunciation. I want you to know, not just Garth, but everyone, that I'm aware that I have pronunciation deficiencies. So what I do, what I try to do, knowing that I will be pronouncing names foreign to my tongue and maybe your ear, is I do research. So this was talking about a few different stories from Africa, and one of them was about an opposition member from Senegal named Amy Nj Nyinbi, spelled A-M-Y-N-D-I-A-Y-E. G-N-I-B-Y. So that could have gone a lot of directions. But I did research. I did a lot of research. Almost everyone covering this, it was a visual because she got, she threw a chair and then got punched. Actually, she got hit, then threw a chair, then got kicked, did Amy Nj Nimbi. But I sensed that Western journalists were avoiding pronunciation of her name. But I found a French journalist. They said it. And I brought it to you. I wrote it in my script. I wrote it phonetically because I wanted to proudly pronounce Amy and then I was talking about the leader of Burkina Faso, Ibrahim Traore. And the reason I said Ibrahim Traore is I did research. I looked up different pronunciations of his name. I looked up Reuters pronouncing the head of Burkina Faso's name. I looked up DW, which is a German broadcaster who broadcasts in English, pronouncing Ibrahim Traore's name. And then I found Al Jazeera doing the same. Now, as you can hear, it's a little bit of difference between Traore and Traore. So I defaulted. I thought Reuters might know the most the uh, reporter was in country. And I think that maybe Al Jazeera was reporting on what happened from afar, from far, far away. I had two sources saying Traore. So I said Traore. Confident, not necessarily that I got it perfect, but that I put in my due diligence so that I could rebut anyone who might come and say Traore. Well, Grant was one person. He writes, not being able to come, and he didn't know I did all this work. He just heard me say Traore and not like it. Not being able to come close to Traore, one of the most common names in the entire subregion, and the name of previous as well as current heads of state is one thing. But Burkina Faso? Yes, I was saying Burkina Faso instead of Burkina Faso. And that irked him. I understand. Grant loves this region. Grant wants it to be pronounced correctly if it's pronounced at all. But uh, as he says, for fuck's sake, Mike, with the exceptions of Madagascar and a few remaining click languages in Southern Africa, African names are pretty damned easy to pronounce at least to a the, quote, close enough to show your trying standard. That's all I'm trying to prove here. I was trying. If I got it wrong, well, serve my head up on a silver tray or tra or treore. He also alleges, and I do take issue with this, the fact is you make fewer pronunciation mistakes than most. It's just that almost all the ones I notice are of African names. Oh, no, sir. I make many pronunciation mistakes. I could fill every Antoine Tig with listeners writing in saying, you pronounced this wrong. For instance, a listener wrote in to say that I pronounced freighted, frighted, when it should be freighted. He also said vehemently is emphasis on the V. Did I say vehemently? Vehemently? I have no idea. 
Another listener, Arkady, who warned me off trying to pronounce his name, said, Mike, you're pronouncing Yevgeny Prigozhin wrong because I pronounced it Yevgeny Prigozhin. Z-H-I-N is more a Zhin. He then gives me the rule. Z-H is not Z. It's a voiced retroflex fricative. Oh, frick. A, a third listener writes in to say, oh, another small thing. The phrase you use should be pronounced in represente with an E. Latin verbs and the participles derived from them have what's called a thematic valve. And that listener was Peter Weitzner or possibly Wetzner. I'm sure it's a third way that I'm not even thinking of pronouncing correctly. So the idea that I make fewer mistakes than most and it's mostly African, wrong and wrong. My pronunciations are a globe-trotting series of errors. I dot the map in a nightmare of garbled pronunciations, of incorrect plosives and stricken fricatives. I do not know if this is enough to appease the Burkina Faso-loving Vant Hull. We left on decent enough terms, and he finally said of my pronunciation of Ibrahim Traore and Amy Nje Nyenbi, by the way, Amy Nje Nyembi was a neighbor of mine for four years, and she pronounces her first name Ami. Walked into that one. So if that, if Mr. Van Hull is not the lobster, and he's not, he's almost, uh, what would be the negative or the opposite of a lobster? He's somewhat of the crab nebula of letter writers. And by the way, I appreciate him writing in and everyone writing in. It shows they care. But if Garth Van Hull is the Crab Nebula of this Antoine Tig. Who shall be the lobster? Well, there are quite a few nominees, and a bunch of people got that chat AI and decided to put it on gist content. I got a limerick about the gist, but I did get from someone named Kerwin on the Reddit page, I did get an AI bot gist interview between me and Erdogan, the president of Turkey. Recep Tayyip Erdogan, I'm sure I'm pronouncing that wrong. It goes something like this. Hello and welcome to The Gist, a podcast where we explore the latest in news and culture. I'm your host, Mike Pesca. Today, we have a special guest, the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. And then starts off, you know, like your standard president of Turkey interview, but a very first question. So, Mr. President Erdogan, I have to ask, how is the bird Turkey population doing in your country? There is a brief silence on the other end of the line. Mike, I'm not sure what you're referring to. Turkey is a country, not a bird. President Erdogan says, his tone slightly incredulous. Oh, my apologies, Mr. President. I must have gotten confused. And we go on from there. And most of our interview, according to this AI chatbot, I assume it's an AI chatbot, is about the word Turkey, the country of Turkey, and President Erdogan trying to take no offense over my pronunciation of Turkey. This does sound, I mean, I'd have pressed him on political repression, but this actually does sound eerily like a conversation that I would have, but it also sounds like a conversation that I'm glad to have spared you. The AI bots all have this mm, characteristic of they're interesting and delightful because they were invented by a computer, but if they were generated by a non-computer, they wouldn't be that good. But the third... But overlayered onto that fact, onto that general fact, I can't believe a computer is doing this, is the idea of it's so close to not a computer. Only if it were not a computer, it wouldn't be interesting at all. 
You get what I'm saying? We're grading it on the computer curve, even though the whole appeal is you shouldn't even think that it's a computer. But anyway, that aside, Kerwin from the Reddit page, thanks to you, technology, and perhaps the impending singularity, or perhaps, I don't know, many people cheating on their high school essays. I do have to say, Kerwin, you are the lobster of the Antwin Tig. And that's it for today's show. That's it for this year's shows. Corey Wara is the producer of The Gist. He nailed it that last week, a producer. Carry on in 2023, Corey. Joel Patterson's the senior producer of The Gist. Michelle Pesca is COO of Peachfish Productions. She's in line for a promotion, too. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash The Gist. We will be off for a week out. Be here tomorrow with the Saturday show. There's some new content in that. Then we'll be off for the rest of 2022. And then great guest hosts in 2023. Do you want me to tease some of them? Bob Garfield, Ray Suarez, Camille Foster, and a cast of thousands. No, just three. They're splitting up the four days of the week that constitute the first week, the first working week of the year. And I'll be back after that. Possibly refreshed. Certainly rejuvenated from having listened to Bob, Ray, and Camille. Please enjoy those shows. Please enjoy your new year. Oomperu, Jeeperu, Duperu. Yeah, Erdogan knows what that means. Thanks for listening. <laughs>